After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome back to Mind Rolling with David Silver, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Good morning, David. We're very early this morning. Yeah, good morning. So, yeah, it's, it's bright and early. It's a lovely, crisp, as they, people love to say, it's a crisp fall day. In other words, it's yeah. freezing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crisp. <laughs> I like to be crisped. Uh, we have, a, everybody, we have a absolutely wonderful uh, podcast today and uh, talk with one of our favorite people in the world, Roshi Joan Halifax. We've had her on before. And uh, although it was briefer than we would have loved to have been there with her for a couple of hours, it would have been great. Uh, it was just packed with some incredible, as David said, transcendent wisdom. Here's somebody... What's your description? Somebody who is is in the world but not of it, eh? Just... Yeah, she she's right there. You know, like you know, she made me feel a little better because I watch the news after I meditate, and she does too. And coming from the abbot of the Upaya Zen Buddhist Center, it made me feel a little less stupid that I'm watching CNN at seven thirty in the morning. She watches it because we're all in it in, in here, and we, we're constantly confronted with with uh, situations that challenge our ability to uh, balance ourselves and other people. And she's just a genius at this. She's a genius at it. All she has to do is kind of look at you. She's so beautiful and benign, but she's also so incredibly articulate about how to do this, how to how to turn it around mm. and give you that perspective that I, we're all in awe of her, and you're going to enjoy this rather short. It's not that short. It's you know, I'm, what was it, thirty-five, Rago? Something like that. But yeah. you know what she's got? She's got uh, what they would call the Tibetans would call Vajra wisdom, cutting through wisdom. I mean, I think that that's very, very uh, much an emblem of, uh, of who she really is. And, uh, and David is uh, uh, putting up a book called A Vajra Speech. Who's, who's that by, Dave? It's by uh, my, uh, my own personal idol, Tulku Orgain Rinpoche. Oh, Tulku and Orgain, I'm, of course. I, I'm recommending the book. This, you must think these segues are planned. They're so weird, but they weren't. Uh, Raghu just said Vajra, you know, out of his heart. But um, I'm, I'm recommending two books, both by the great Tulku Organ Rinpoche. And the reason I recommend Vajra's speech is that it's a small book with full of sort of pithy stuff, you know, like one paragraph stuff. Uh, you know, and I can open the book randomly and say, okay, this is called meditation. In the training of recognizing the essence of empty cognizance, there is not even as much as a hair tip to create or imagine as an act of meditating. We simply need to grow used 
to recognizing. That's just one paragraph of me. And I want you to go and get it because at Amazon, uh, first of all, it helps us tremendously for you to go to Amazon and buy something. But there's only four left, as of about an hour ago, of the cheaper version of this. Amazon blows me away. I don't understand it. There's like eight things for Vajra speech, and each one gets more expensive, but it's the same book. So this one is about 12 bucks or something. And if you go and get it now, you'll grab those last four of the cheaper ones. Then they go up to 18 bucks and 20 bucks, whatever. Very much worth it. And the other book is a wonderful book called Rainbow Painting, also by Tulku Orgyan Rinpoche. It's on Amazon. It's not very expensive. And it is, I don't even want to try and describe it. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of an ultimate book about realization, very simply put, but mm. splendid. So those two books by uh, Orgyan. Uh, I would highly recommend that you go to the Amazon virtual bookstore in the sky and buy. <laughs> very, very, very poetry-like. <laughs> I've got a book, Dave. Do you remember, and I haven't told you about this, uh, And we're, since we're on a Buddhist theme this morning, uh, do you remember uh, we had a guest, Tanisara? Oh, under her husband, yeah. And her husband. Or is it the other way around? No. Uh, She's Tanisara, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, great. So this is a book called Time to Stand Up. Now, it, it really uh, talk about unplanned, but in this podcast uh, or this in, interview, if you want to call it that, or talk with uh, Roshi Joan, she talks about a lot of who she is as an activist. She is not just uh, you know, sitting in the zendo and closing off the world. She is very much an activist. This book is that as well. It's an unapologetically feminist and relentlessly inciting engaged Buddhist manifesto. Okay, The book's dedication, given not only to all nuns, but to the kindly, wrathful, authentic, and nurturing feminine within us all. More than a feminist critique of Buddhism or yet another invitation to leap off the cushion and into the streets, this declarative but supple argument intertwines the two, redefining the feminine as both empathic and confrontational, then putting it forward as the sav, sav that patriarchal Buddhism and our world in crisis desperately need. Okay, talk wow. about a, a book that uh, I'm going to get. I, I just uh, this was in one of my uh, Buddhist magazines, and I'm cutting this out and going to Amazon and going to pick that up. And David, uh, I'm going. Uh, this is live planning. Everybody, <laughs> we're going to yeah. go and get a hold of Tani Sara and uh, get her on the air again. What's the name of the book again, Ron? The name of the book is "Time to Stand Up." Okay. Wow, that says it straight out. I mean, yeah. So uh, it's very much in Roshi's tradition. Uh, by the way. I uh, I want to. There was a couple of things that I want to read to you, Dave. Oh, that okay. um, that are from Roshi, and they're quotes that I had picked up. Just more things that I wanted her to just uh, explicate on. Um, that uh, are just absolutely beautiful. In being with, and you know, we're talking about the dying uh, subject because of what happened to your friend. In being with dying, we arrive at a natural crucible 
a natural crucible of what it means to love and be loved. And we talk about this. Uh, we talk about this in our retreats with Ramdas and Sharon. Uh, actually, I'm going to bring this up because we're having a retreat. Uh, by the way, do, David, do you mind if I do another little uh, promo? No, no, it's good. It's good. Um, on uh, so we're going to a retreat with Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, and others. Uh, Mirabai Bush. Uh, in early December, and we're going to stream three days of it, Dave. And we're going to do that on December 4th, 5th, and 6th. And the streaming will be in the latter part of the day. Go to ramdas.org, and you'll, you, you can sign up, and it's a free stream. And it's going to be just spectacular material around the uh, Love Everyone book that just came out on uh, Harper One. So that is the this and this happened and we've talked about it before in my own experience, uh, particularly with my father and sitting when he was dying, and um, being right uh, as Ramdas calls it, uh, the edge of awakening. And and it's 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 being in that place that ultimately it's it's a place a full on place of love, and. Uh, I I had compared it at the time with that place which I, with, with Maharaji, with Neem Karoli Baba, when I felt I was in that same edge of, of awakening and, the, and it was completely surrounded by that unconditional love. And that was the same place when my father was dying. And so I've always had that connection between the two and I've, I've always... Um, I mean that's when when you talk uh, at some point in the uh, in the talk we we have which you'll hear with uh, Roshi, David talks about his friend who had died last night, and he talked about how to deal with that grief and and so on and how how to even share that with with other people in a way that um, cultivated something other than complete utter loss and devastation. And uh, so uh, I, th I think this is death, love and death. Remember that was a Woody Allen movie, Love and Death? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> don't remember the film, actually. I just don't remember. I just remember the title, too. It must have been goofier than hell, but yeah, <laughs> still. I'm sure it was. <laughs> but it's so profound, love and death. It is so profound. And it, it, it's, it's um, obviously practice, which we talk about in the in the uh, talk with her uh, is a very much a part of what needs to happen so that you we can uh we, we're going to live with the grief there's no doubt about it i mean as she said it, it, we're just going it, to it's something that never goes away at the same time living with the awareness that and i think in, in my case my own experience i always go back to the love that we share and the love that's inside us, in that moment when we transition, that is what is there. As long as we have, uh, you know, a, a certain uh, openness and acceptance, rather than fear and rejection, right? I mean, I think that that. Uh, so I love this quote. Oh, did you? Oh, you, you did it right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, you know, the only thing I would add to that is that you know, obviously. With with the passing of a, a, a 
parent, friend, and whatever. It's the extreme edge of that edge. But I remember, it just came to me, and right as you were talking, this, this image in my head of driving on the West Side Highway where it becomes the Henry Hudson, just, just after the George Washington Bridge here in New York. And my daughter, Sequoia, was about nine. It's a long time ago. And it was in January. And we were driving, and there were about four cars behind us, quite a way behind us, thank God. And suddenly, I started skidding. And for the only time, I did a full 360. Hmm. The car just went 360 degrees around. And it took a while. And in that time, my, my, my daughter was holding onto my arm with such a grip, it was beyond words. She was frightened to death. And I was too. I had no control. You know how it is. You just lose control. And you, I remember in those few seconds, you know, my, you know, my heart really did open in some sense. Because I thought this could be the last, not just for me, but for me and my kid. Because we're, I saw the cars coming at me halfway through the 360 when we were at 180. They were coming, and they were not skidding. They were coming. Turned the full thing, and then it was, just, it was like a, a movie. It was like CGI, you know, just went on driving straight forward as we got into the three, after the full circle. Those things happen all the time in life. You know, you're on a plane and it does a horrible, one of those dropping 500 feet in an air bubble and you just think, oh my God, this is the end, whatever, and it isn't. But, you know, not only is that what I think Raga was just talking about and what Roshi Joan is going to talk about, but then you realize all the people on the planet who are suffering similar things at the same time. You know, and you don't think about them until it happens to you. That's just the nature of survival, I guess. But um, it's certainly true. And the number of people um, on on uh, the Internet in the last week who've expressed genuine love, empathy, sympathy for our French friends who were uh, killed so unfortunately and so dra dramatically and horribly uh, is real. I mean, you can be cynical about it and everything, but it's real. Everybody's just, oh, my God, look at what happened to these people. Just like us, they went to a rock concert, they went to a restaurant, and, and they were killed in the most vicious way. And people all over the world are just, oh, my goodness, saddened. And, you know, in a way, it's terrible, but in a way, it's great that, that, that we're now in a stage where we can have that kind of empathy and sympathy and compassion for others that were not related to us. Yeah. We're just people out there. So good, I mean... Or there are these moments, I guess, yeah. these awakening moments, and, and they're all over the place. And if you can use them as the great masters like Roshi and who've absorbed this wisdom into their everyday life, so that I mean, the reason she couldn't do a longer podcast with us, with Raga and I, was because she was going to work with a student at you know, sort of eight o'clock in the morning. Right. That's why, not because she was rushing off to a, a conference or being interviewed by a post or something. She was just helping someone. Yeah. And this is the essence of Roshi Jonah, and that's all I have to say. And you're going to enjoy this because it's, it's, it's real. It's just moving what she says. Mm -hmm. Every word that comes out of her beautiful mouth is, um, is helpful. Yeah. Uh, one last uh, quote from her. Oh, good. Uh, because I don't know how much we have talked about uh, meditation practice and uh, how much we encourage ourselves and everybody else to to be consistent with that is to be able to bear and uh, transform inside ourselves much of what uh, 
day-to-day suffering that we engage with. So um, here's a beautiful quote about from her and her personal experience of why uh, she uses meditation. I practice meditation to give my life a strong spine of practice and an open heart from which I can see beyond which I know. Mm. Right? I mean, and if anybody needs any kind of motivational quote about why to do meditative practice, to me this is it. I mean, she always t- talks about a strong spine and a soft heart. And that's the combination that we want to engender. And uh, and I think when we talk about all of these events that are going on in the world, when we talk about our day-to-day dealing with uh, keeping our lives in balance, I think that uh, this quote from her about the consistent practice of meditation, giving a strong spine and an open heart from which you can transform what see beyond what we know transform sure. our day to day reality so that is just great hmm. really yeah. yeah so here it is everybody uh thank by the way thanks for the support uh that we're getting we continue david to get support from people who are doing recurring uh, donations that is helping a lot um we are uh spending a bunch of money these days on uh, preparing this app that we're going to release in January, the HeartMind app, on, that'll be a smartphone app. We uh, have been told that we need to get to uh, get this going not just with Apple iOS, we need to get it going with Android. Not everybody uses Apple, and, you know, that's a whole other conceit, right? Uh <laughs> So uh, so this is going a long way to helping us to accomplish these things uh, and many other things like getting the course together, which is just going to be Life and Balance course, which we've been talking about. So thanks for the support. Please do continue. And here uh, is our conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax. Hi, Roshi Joan Halifax. Hello. Hi. We're here with uh, the three of us again, David Silver and... Myself, Raghu. So, Roshi, we're going to get right into this. And um, I have th- this... Now, Every as everyone knows, Roshi Joan is the abbot of, uh, of her zendo in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I used to live as well. And uh, she teaches at... Uh, all levels, shall we say. And uh, I'm going to ask you, Roshi, a question that is at a very beginner level. Because as you know, with mind rolling, we get a lot of young people who are just even understanding that there is a way to be happy. There is a way to deal with their day-to-day suffering. And I'd just like you to talk about perspective that once you see that you can be coming from a different vantage point in your life, that there is a way to deal with your, the day-to-day suffering that we all encounter, 
what are the ways in which we can cultivate that? And what is uh, a major way to be able to look at life from a different perspective other than the one that uh, is caught up in attachment to senses, mind, and so on? I think you're talking, uh, Raghu, about what we would call a path. And um, a path is where you're standing right now. And it's that moment of uh, realization that arises when you see that things aren't working that well, that you're suffering or that people around you are, are miserable or that you are cast upon uh, uh, a pile of rocks, either by virtue of being really sick, um, by virtue of uh, finding yourself in uh, a terrible situation um, where your priorities or your sense of what's really important opens up for you. And, you know, I think that um, a really powerful example uh, which is present for us today, but is also, uh, you know, in, in part of my own history. Uh, uh, and this comes from a question I was asked by Rebecca Solnit, who's a social critic, uh, a question that she asked me yesterday um, uh, that uh, reminded me of a story from my past. Um, uh, the... the uh, in, extraordinary events and their world-changing events that are happening uh, at this time uh, of this interview uh, in relation to uh, the jihadists, uh, the terrorists uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world. Um, most of these people are young people. They're young people uh, and also the median age of uh, people in the Middle East very young people, and it's going to be also uh, the median age for, uh, uh, you know, people all over the planet, in spite of, you know, some of us living longer. Um, the truth is that um, the world is going to be more and more uh, occupied um, uh, by uh, young people. And um, uh I, re I remember um, when I was a young person, I was in Paris, and I was asked by the ambassador from uh, Algiers to uh, go to Algeria and to do an analysis. Uh, I was an anthropologist uh, in my early years, to do an analysis of why so many young men were committing suicide in a neighborhood in Algiers called Bab el Wed. And this neighborhood was the, the neighborhood where the Maquis, those who fought in the Algerian revolution, many of them came from this neighborhood. And um, uh, so I went to Algiers, this was in 1968, went to Algiers from Paris and um, uh, began a series of interviews and what I learned was that um, the young men in this area um, really had interjected the enemy. They had uh, uh, 
no longer, um, this had been eight years since the end of the war the, uh, uh, between France and Algeria. Boumedian, the socialist uh, president, had taken over. And um, they felt as though there was no external enemy to fight. And um, uh, that sense of uh, futility and worthlessness was really great. And that is uh, a, a feeling that um, you know many people have gone through, that um, many young people experience, and uh, <coughs> it's <coughs> related to you know how do we find a sense of meaning in our lives, and that meaning might come in you know uh, terms of uh, external revolution, like a. Uh, freeing a country or the you know the rights movement or black lives uh, matter all of which are um, really powerful movements that give uh, direction and meaning and purpose to people and it can also come in terms of an internal revolution um, how we transform our lives um, so that we are operating from uh, our heart, really from the base of love, from also the base of wisdom. So um, I look at this, you know, in, in an interesting way, uh, our time, um, you know, as uh, a person who's, you know, had quite a lifespan, um, you know, I learned so much when, when I was in Algeria from uh, the young people of that time, and I'm seeing um, this is also uh, uh, the same kind of narrative arc that is driving the lives of uh, many young people on the planet today, where the sense of enemy, the sense of meaninglessness, the sense of anonymousness, the sense of purposelessness is present. And it is out of this ground that we can either, you know, engage in uh, a great deal of harm toward ourselves or others, or we can open up our lives to um, the possibility of spiritual transformation. So I, that's kind of a roundabout way to, to explore this question you're asking, but um, uh, it's, it's kind of up for me having gotten up early this morning and meditated and then reading the news, uh, which I, I do every morning as part of my practice because, you know, we are part of the weave of the world and I'm staying in touch with, uh, you know, Glenn uh, Greenwald's perspective and Jeremy Scahill's perspective and also, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats and what's happening in Paris, what's happening in Mali, what's happening in the human heart. So, um, you know, how do we uh, nourish um, uh, basic human goodness and how do we help also uh, in our own lives and in the life of the world, you know, uh, address the truth of suffering and um, uh, work with that truth uh, courageously. And um, whether it's working with dying people or with people who are homeless, cl more close to home, or working with uh, the sense of rootlessness um, that uh, we're beginning to, you know, come in contact with 
even more strongly in the Middle East as the, the Middle East begins to dissolve. So, you know, whether you're young or old, these are questions that um, are really important because we can't just put our head in a hole. We can't just do the ostrich thing. You know, we have a moral obligation to live by vow, to live in a way that um, uh, is based in the heart of compassion. Right. Beautifully said. I want to just take this uh, uh, one step uh, further in terms of maybe giving people some uh, support. Uh, I'm going to quote something from you from some time ago. Uh, A spiritual practice can be a place where what Keats called, quote-unquote, negative capability capability. (laughs) of uncertainty and doubt can transform into a refuge of truth. Wonderful, wonderful quote. Can you please explicate? Well, I I think in a way I have, which uh, just now, um, I really love that Keats quote. Uh, um, That is that, um, you know, all of us, uh, even the Dalai Lama, uh, when, um, you know, I saw uh, him do a, a... memorial service for the Tibetans who had emulated themselves. So, you know, even people who have, uh, you know, great development, all of us have moments when um, our uh, sense of purpose, our life, when our doubt, when our deep futility um, open up in us. It's like a, a deep well of sorrow or desolation or futility uh, touches us, opens up or uh, like um, uh, a a kind of spirit that blooms inside of us that is not a happy spirit. And, you know, it takes the form of depression, takes the form of anger, takes the form of anguish, sorrow, grief, hatred, uh, greed, And um, when this happens, um, it's our ability to actually uh, recognize uh, the edge that has uh, cut us and to work that edge in such a way that that the wound heals to make a a stronger, uh, deeper person. And, um, you know, I'm working on a book now called Standing at the Edge, uh, and, or it be, might be Standing on the Edge. <laughs> mm. um, uh, but it's a book about exactly this thing, about the, the s- strength of character that arises um, when we turn into the skid, when we open up to the truth of our difficulties, um, you know, there, there's nothing, I think, kind of duller and more uh, embarrassing than it's all light and love, so to speak, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, that um, really uh, uh, we take a, the life of someone like uh, Nelson Mandela, who uh, uh, was imprisoned for his uh, views and actions around uh, justice and equality. And I remember uh, Archbishop Tutu said, Nelson lacked empathy before he went into prison. And somehow uh, the uh, 
uh, his long experience of incarceration in Robben Island um, opened up uh, virtues with him that were not accessible um, even as he was working for uh, justice. So um, it's not to turn away from suffering, but it's to actually to have the capacity like Viktor Frankl did, you know, in his internment in Auschwitz to uh, turn toward um, how suffering can build character even as we go through a dissolution process. And you have another term for that uh, that I saw in another quote called the lucky dark. Right, yeah. I love that. Yeah, the lucky dark is uh, exactly uh, uh, a metaphor for that process. You know, I mean, it's, you meet these people who in this incarnation, for example, seem like their lives are totally blessed. Um, But that blessing is often uh, a mixed blessing Mm. in the sense that their blessing has arisen really uh, in the context of great difficulties. And I think our buddy Ramdas is a powerful example of that. You know, he was stroked uh, 20 years ago and has been in his wheelchair for, you know, a, a generation worth of years. And um, uh, he was uh, always an incredible being, but somehow um, his heart and mind opened even more powerfully in the course of this uh great burden of the body. Uh, And, um, you know, I think he's an extraordinary example of of, uh, lived compassion. Mm. I I wanted to ask you, um, a a very good friend of mine died last night. Oh. And, um, yeah, uh, not someone I saw every day, but someone I worked with for years. And he was beloved by everybody who knew him. And the... uh, communications I received this morning were all exactly the same. Uh, He was the person responsible for all the massive rock and roll tours of the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, Beatles, The Stones, Bob Dylan, The Eagles, Grateful Dead. He organized all of them. A gentleman called Michael O'Hearn. Not one person had a bad thing to say about him. And we're all dealing with this uh, this morning, which is that uh, a lovely spirit, a man that we all loved, all of us who knew him, and, you know, no matter how many times I read about it and how many times I practice it, uh, the loss of a really wonderful being and the loss of anyone, really, even, you know, these people who are blowing themselves up in Paris and Mali and Kenya and Lebanon is, is a loss. And I've been saying, I've been writing to people this morning saying that Bob Dylan wrote this song, which I think is his greatest song. The song is entitled, Death is Not the End. It's a marvelous song, one that only Dylan could do. And that's all I do now. I just take the song and I quote it and I send it. Mm. Uh, Because it's the only way I can actually deal with helping other people. Myself, I go through all kinds of (laughs) contortions about it that are not that, I don't think I want to teach those contortions. But Dylan's simplicity about this really blows me away every time I listen to the song. Death is not the end. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way I've been able to deal with this morning and last night, uh, to not be unhappy. You know, when people say, sorry for your loss, condolences for your loss, particularly on Facebook, it it sort of goes right through me. 
It's okay. It's better than saying I'm glad he died. But it, it doesn't work for me. Sorry for your loss. It's just an abstraction, you know, sort of a sort of a a meme, a, a bromide pulled from our collective linguistic consciousness. How would you suggest, not only to millennials, but to people of our advanced age, to deal with, to initially deal with the trauma of loss when you have no ground, no ground in, the, in, in Zen Buddhism, no ground in Bhakti Yoga, no ground in nothing. I use that Dylan song. That's all I use. I've never found anything better. What are your suggestions for people to come back to a life in balance after trauma of that kind? Mm-hmm. So, David, I think that um, there are as many pathways as there are people. And I think uh, Dylan's song is medicine. Um, I think that mountains are medicine. I think that um, uh, embracing your dog is medicine. Um, And that uh, I have never found one bromide or one uh, prescription that um, works for all. But um, I love that you, uh, you know, that um, Dylan, who is such an extraordinary uh, person, you know, whose life also spans this uh, arc from uh, the 60s where, um, you know, he, he uh, really saw into, without doing it consciously, but uh, he had the the inspiration to somehow characterize the the zeitgeist, the sort of spirit being of uh, a generation. And um, that so much of what emerged in that time um, lives also today. And um, yet death is as it is. Um, the, the power of grief cannot be underestimated because it truly is one of the most important experiences that humanizes us. So um, uh, it's, again, as you say, there are these palliatives that are uh, typical, like, uh, you know, the, the sentences, you'll be okay, or so on and so forth. But this is not, I think, helpful. I I like what Rowan uh, Williams said, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, you know, the worst thing I feel you can say to someone is, "I, I know how you feel. And he said, I think it's more respectful to say, I can never know how you feel. Um, uh, which is, in a way, a a denial of empathy. But it is, um, uh, the truth is that your grief is so unique to you and the path out of your grief or working your grief or knowing that grief at some moment or in some way uh, never leaves us. You know, I remember the first experience of grief for me. It was when a neighbor poisoned my little dog. And um, I was a child. And I i mean, I went completely, I could not believe that somebody would do that. And you know how kids are with their dogs. 
and it left this big hole in my life. And here we hear the barking. Um, you know, it's like some shadow of the past. Uh, but um, uh, the, that mark actually never left me because uh, whenever I experience an, a loss of someone close to me, somehow I have this memory returned to me of this dog. I mean, his name was Terry. You know, this beautiful little dog. Um, who was uh, killed by a neighbor. And it, it is a humanizing element. So um, whatever you can use uh, to um, bring forth your basic humanity, I mean, I think that's our world and our work. Very much so. Um uh, just keeping along this uh, this line, and we don't have much time left, but I want to get this in. Uh, this is something else from you. Trust and patience combined with openness and acceptance. Qualities nurtured by mindfulness practice enable us to sustain ourselves in being with death and dying. And uh, the key words for me, for, I'd like you to expand upon are, uh, trust is such an important word for me because uh, everybody can relate to trust uh, a little more than they can with, say, faith, that word. Patience, openness and acceptance um, and developing these qualities through mindfulness. Can you talk about that relative to dealing with death and dying and grief? Well, <clears throat> the word trust is really beautiful because it, it uh, the root of it relates to the same word for uh, dharma, um, that which is firmly established. And one thing we can <clears throat> be sure about is that um, uh, this body will die. And uh, we can trust in that. And um, another thing that we're asked but doesn't necessarily happen for us is... Uh, our practice is about developing some uh, quality of wisdom that allows us to see the truth of, uh, of impermanence, that all things um, are in constant change. All things are uh, transient. Uh, anything that you have now will pass uh, from you. And um, that sense of groundlessness, of... Um, the slipperiness of, uh, of existence is really powerful to come to terms with. So, you know, when I say trust, uh, I'm not looking for a, a simple kind of trust. It's more the trust that arises in the experience of, of waking up. And um, patience is another interesting word. I remember I was standing uh, uh, on a corner in New York uh, with Joseph Campbell, and he told me this story. He said he was standing years before on a corner in New York uh, uh, with uh, Alan Watts, and he was very uh, nervous because his wife, who was a dancer, was late in showing up, and he was kind of impatient. And uh, Watts turned to him and said, Hey, Joe, what are you waiting for? And uh, Joe, it was like this sort of blinding flash of realization that all of his impatience, you know, um, was just ridiculous. And he just immediately came back to Sixth Avenue where he and Watts were uh, actually uh, 
looking for Gene Erdman, uh, Joe's wife, to show up. What are you waiting for? It's just this moment. I mean, you're going you're gonna to die. There's no question about it. Uh, uh, we don't know what happens exactly at the moment of death or thereafter. But right now, this is where we are. So patience is really important. And um, uh, when I, uh, later in that quote, you know, I'm talking about, you know, how do we cultivate the quality of mind that allows us to be vividly in the present? And um, to open up, knowing that the future is in the present, the past is in the present, but, you know, it's right here, right here. And, and actually, the, the miracle of this moment. And uh, it is kind of miraculous just to be here. And, you know, again, having uh, traveled all over the world so much and, you know, thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm not in Nepal right now. I was last month, but I'm, I'm not in a place that is, uh, under siege. I'm not in a place where uh, the earth is shaking. I'm not under a tarp in Gorka with winter uh, upon me. Uh, you know, I, I feel very blessed. And I want to take the gift of this moment in my own karmic situation and turn it back to the world, you know, with thank you, with gratefulness. So part of trust is that ability to just appreciate your life and to mm -hmm. turn, you know, your energy back to the world, you know, and, and helping to end suffering in, you know, whatever small way that you're able. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. One, one last thing. Mercy from you. Mercy is the grace of compassion. And it is one of the ways we express our love and non-duality in relation to each other. Love, that's a beautiful quote, Roshi. Uh, could you please talk about that a little bit? Mercy and, and grace. You know, there is, um, there is something about our deep concern for the well-being of others, which is uh, grounded in unselfishness and in love. And um, it's love that really feeds mercy. And it's also care uh, that feels, feeds mercy. And um, that, for me, is, you know, really what this life is about. It's not uh, adventitious or superficial mercy. It's um, really like merci means thank you. It's that sense of gratefulness, uh, of turning toward others with this, you know, this deep heart of um, how can I serve you? And it's, you know, very much, again, you know, thinking of my buddy Ramdas and, and uh, your work with him. It's about loving, it's about serving, and it's about remembering. Hmm. So you all have a beautiful day. Thank and you. And let's practice together, love, serve, and remember. Very much so. Amen. Thank you so much, Roshi. Thank you. <laughs> Namaste, Roshi. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.